Well, good morning. You're a lot better than the first service. Good morning. Uh, So I have the privilege this morning to be teaching on probably the most influential text in the Bible for my ministry. There's no other text that has influenced me more. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so you can open your Bibles or turn on your Bibles, however you do that. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is going to answer some of the biggest questions we have in ministry. So I know some of you might be thinking, well, Jim, I'm not in vocational ministry. Well, if that's the way you're thinking, let me, let me push on you a little bit and ask you a few questions. Do you have children who you pray for that they will receive Jesus and grow firm in their faith one day? Do you pray that for your grandchildren? Do you have parents or relatives who you long to be able to understand and know the gospel the way that you do? Do you have friends or coworkers who you see making very unwise decisions because they are looking for joy and satisfaction in everywhere except Jesus? If you're able to answer yes to any of those questions, congratulations, you are in ministry. And if you're here this morning, maybe you're not a Christian. You would not call yourself a Christian and you're thinking, man, I can't think of a less applicable sermon to me. I want you to know that I think this is actually a really good Sunday for you to be here because you get to see our hopes and plans for you. We're not going to hide anything. Hopefully we won't feel awkward or pressured, but you get to see how we go about uh, wanting to do ministry to people who don't call themselves Christians. So I hope that this feels like a very applicable and helpful sermon for everybody, wherever you are. So with that said, I'm going to be looking at the five questions the five questions that this, that this passage answers about ministry. So here they are. First, why we don't lose heart. Why we don't lose heart. What prevents people from responding to Jesus? What will cause someone to respond to Jesus? What we're not supposed to do and what we are supposed to do. So some of you are type A and you really like outlines. So there you go. There's an outline. If you don't like outlines, forget it. Don't worry about it. So I hope it's helpful for whoever likes outlines. That's how it's going to go. Let's dive in and read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Amen. So first point, why we don't lose heart. I had a friend who has four children Tell me a couple weeks ago that he got an email that probably a lot of you have received. It was an email from AT&T saying he had exceeded the amount of bandwidth that his family plan was allotted for the month. 
And the, the earlier in the month you get that kind of email, the more frustrating it is. And so he was talking to his family, trying to figure out who's the culprit, what can we do to get the bandwidth down. And the next day, one of his children came to him and said, Dad, it's all right. I talked to AT&T. We now have unlimited bandwidth. <laughs> He's like, what? You did what? But hey, hey, there's, a, there's a different, another part to this. I've also lowered your bill by $15 a month. Amazing. Good work. How in the world did you do this? We, I want everybody to know about this great news. You can get unlimited bandwidth for a lower monthly bill. And then he paused and he said, Jim, the really convicting thing was that I was more excited about telling people the good news about unlimited bandwidth at a lower monthly rate than I was about telling people the good news about Jesus coming to redeem and restore sinners. And he asked me, why is that? And I thought about it for, for a week. I mean, but why, why is that? That makes sense. And I think the answer is this. Jesus and AT&T are going to be rejected by people. Both of them are rejected often. But when Jesus is rejected, it's more personal to us. It's more personal it's a, it's a deeper conviction that we feel. And at some level, we don't feel like it's just Jesus getting rejected. We feel like we're being rejected. And that potential rejection, it scares us. It can cause us to not want to share the gospel and to lose heart. And that is why Paul opens this, text, this passage the way he does. He says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So Paul, along with every Christian, is called into ministry. It's going to look different. There are going to be different callings to our different ministries, but all of us is called into a ministry, and we will be rejected. Our message will be rejected, and it is going to be hard. And if we don't know what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it, it is going to be very easy for us to lose heart, very easy for us to become discouraged. But Paul tells us here in this text that the reason he doesn't lose heart is because he knows the incredible mercy that it is that we get to do this, this ministry. It's a privilege. It's a grace. It's a mercy. We don't have to do anything. God doesn't really need us, but he's allowing us to be involved. And Paul understands clearly who is the object of his ministry. Because if we don't understand the object of our ministry, we will be prone to lose heart. Our object of our ministry first isn't us. It's not to see how many converts we can make, how successful we can be. That's, that's nowhere in the picture. If, if that is the object of our ministry, we're either going to become incredibly, insufferably prideful or more likely discouraged and disappointed because our ministries aren't going the way that we think they should go. Or maybe the object of your ministry is the person that you're sharing with. If that's the ultimate object of your ministry, uh, you're going to be prone to be frustrated with them when they don't respond the way you think they should respond. You might become condescending in the way that you talk with them, judgmental or even rude, because you think they are the object of your ministry. The object of our ministry is the one who has called us to the work. God is the object of our ministry. And when we understand who it is we're working for, we will not have the same tendency to lose heart and to lose hope. 
So if that's true, the first thing we need to do is ask ourselves, who are we doing this for anyway? Why are we engaging in ministry? Why are we praying for people? Is it for us? Is it for them? Or is it for God and his glory? So we have to have the right object. Then the second question, then we can get to what actually prevents people from responding to this gospel. Why don't people say yes? It, it, it seems it's so clear to us. It makes perfect sense to us, but obviously we have friends and relatives, loved ones, acquaintances. They totally disagree. They don't see this as good news. They don't find it compelling in the least. So is it that we're smarter and they're not? Is it that we're more moral than they are? Is it they just weren't born with, with the, the spiritual inclination that we were born with? Well, Paul says, absolutely not. <laughs> to every one of those possibilities... We see why people don't respond to the gospel in verse 4. In their case, says Paul, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And here we get to the context of what is going on in Corinth. Paul has been going from town to town proclaiming the truth. And there are people we call the false apostles who are coming to Paul and they're saying, all right, Paul, we've, we've got to have a sit down because we've been riding this nothing but the truth train with you for a long time. But we have to address the elephant in the room. Lots of people are rejecting what you're saying. We know Christ is alive. We know he's our only hope, but they're saying no in mass. So what's the problem here? Do we maybe need to somehow make you more attractive, somehow make your, your message more attractive? You know, may, maybe it's that we kind of wait on the hard stuff until we really get their foot in the door. Something's got to change, Paul, because people are not accepting the truth that you're bringing. And Paul says in this verse, no. There is no shortcoming on God's part. The problem isn't in the message. The problem isn't in the delivery system. The problem is in the reception. The problem is sin. And this is where all of our friends and loved ones who disagree with our religious beliefs, this, this if we're honest, is where we separate. I have friends and relatives. We've talked long about this. And at the end of the day, they just don't believe that our sin is that bad, that our sin has caused the amount of problems that the Bible says it's caused. I grew up in a church that I love in Orlando, and I've heard people say, oh, I just don't want to go to that church because they just talk about sin too much. You know, I, I want to go to a church and feel good about myself, not bad about myself. But that's not what Paul's doing. That's what the false apostles are wanting to do. The Bible says that sin is serious, that it is something we should talk about, that sin has actually separated us from, from the God who created us, the God who loves us. And when we became separated, we bring on ourselves voluntarily a real and coming wrath that we deserve. And the Bible says that not only is does sin bring us wrath, sin has so ravaged all of our senses that we don't even have the ability to see Jesus as the answer. 
we're that bad off. We can't even see Jesus as our only hope. And this isn't like some weird doctrine. This is 2,000 years of Orthodox Christianity. Everyone has agreed our sin, our plight is so bad, we are blinded from even being able to see Jesus as the answer. Sin is our problem and we have been blinded. We see that Paul is saying this, blindness is our problem. Our problem is not immorality. Our problem is not a bad government. Our problem is not failing marriages and families. Those are all symptoms of the problem, but the primary problem is blindness. Blindness. And we have to see this because we can't solve a problem we can't properly identify. I can't can't count the number of times I have been sitting with somebody either in my office or the coffee shop, what Chris calls my second office. He no longer is taking reimbursements from there. He said he pays for an office. But I've been sitting with people and I get to hear their stories and they say, Jim, it was like I was blind. I don't know. I just didn't see the things that I see now. It was like I was just blind and my eyes have been opened and I see these things. That's the problem. The problem is blindness. And when we share the gospel with somebody, light shines. Blinding light, thundering light, maybe like, like Paul's conversion. You remember the light that shone when Jesus showed up to him. Maybe that's exactly what Paul has in mind when he's writing this. But when we share the gospel with somebody, when we talk about Jesus, light shines. Thundering, blinding light That they can't see it is no judgment on the validity of our message, on the validity of our Savior, or on the validity of of the way we are presenting that message. Their problem is that they can't see it. They can't see it because they're blind to it. And when we understand the problem, there are at least two implications of understanding this problem well. And the first is this. We're going to be kinder to people who don't believe. When we understand that their problem is fundamentally blindness, we're going to be nicer Christians to people who disagree with us. I mean, we would never ridicule a blind person for being blind. If they bumped into you, you wouldn't turn around and say, oh, why do you have to be so blind? Stop being blind and you, you wouldn't bump into me. No, we would offer them grace because we understand their plight. And in the same way, we should offer the same type of grace to people who are spiritually blind. And and there might, in this room, be somebody who's thinking, well, Jim, this is really insulting. (laughs) I I don't call myself a Christian, and, and you're calling me blind? Well, yes, but I don't mean to be insulting. I really don't. I want, I hope you see where this comes from. You know, why we, why we have some of our favorite hymns like Amazing Grace that say, I once was blind, but now I see. This is what we're talking about. And if it makes you feel better, we as Christians get called a lot worse than blind. So I'm not trying to insult anybody, but if this is you, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I've got one question for you. If this is true, if the problem is blindness, if there's something really great out there that you can't see, Would you want to? Would you want to see it? 
I'm not asking you to, to believe right now. I'm just asking a reasonable question. If the Bible is right and the problem is blindness, would you want to see? And if there's some part of you that's thinking, all right, if you're, what you're saying is true, and this is a big if, Jim, but if it's true, yes, obviously I would want to see. If there's any part of you that feels that way, my challenge is this. Ask God to open your eyes. What are you out? If he doesn't do it, if this is all for nothing, if, if what I'm saying is not true, you haven't lost anything. But what if I am right? And I tell you that if you ask for your eyes to be opened, they will be. They will be. So the first implication is that we will be nicer to people who don't believe. The second implication is that we, we won't doubt the power of the gospel when we don't see it work. We won't say, well, why isn't it working? There must be something wrong with the gospel. Angela and I lived in Italy for five years, and Lord willing, on Thursday, we're going to get to go back with a mission trip from this church. And the hardest part about living and doing ministry in Italy was seeing people daily reject and laugh, literally laugh, at our deepest held conviction. It caused us to wrestle with things that we had never had to wrestle with before. Is this gospel true? Does it really have power? And why doesn't anybody see it the way that we do? And the Lord used this passage more than any other to help me to see there is no problem in the gospel. As imperfect as I am, I can't see that I'm doing anything too wrong. The problem is that there's a blindness that has got to be removed. So if that's true, if people are blinded by sin and the sin is, is so bad, they don't even have the ability to see Jesus as the answer. What hope is there for them? How is anybody going to respond to the gospel? Third question Paul answers, and he does it in verse six. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is Paul quoting here? What's he quoting? All right, the first service has you on this one. Genesis. He's quoting Genesis 1, where God says, Let there be light. There was darkness. There was no light in the universe. And by the power of God's word... The stars shone and the, the sun lit up the earth. And in the same way, our problem can only be overcome when God says, let there be light and our blindness becomes sight. That is the only way anybody will ever be able to see Jesus as their answer. And I know we've got a lot of different church backgrounds in this room. And I want you to know, whatever your background, you, be, you believe this. This was not, this is not controversial. Everybody, Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, and Anglican, we agree, Orthodox Christianity agrees that our, our plight is so bad, we can't see, even see Jesus as the answer. So God has to do something to overcome this. He's got to do something to overcome this. Now, what exactly he does is hotly debated. <laughs> and our text doesn't go there, so I'm not going to go there. But Jesus does say very clearly in John chapter 6, 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him in. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him in. That's how people respond. There's no other way. People respond because God says, let there be light. And we begin to realize that our best efforts are useless if God is not real and working. I had somebody once say, Jim, you just get me on stage and I guarantee that people will come to faith. I was like, whoa. Let me tell you what you just guaranteed, that you will never be on our stage. <laughs> our best efforts without God saying, let there be light are useless. But I think the opposite is probably more applicable to us here. The opposite is also true. Our worst efforts can be powerful when God says, let there be light. I know many of your stories. I know that some of you were won to the faith from the worst evangelistic practices that we have in Christianity, but it worked. I know somebody in this room who led somebody to the Lord this week while calling him the wrong name the entire time. But the gospel was clear and our eyes were opened. As insufficient as we may feel, when God moves, he can use anyone and anything. And I can't think of something that's more encouraging when I want to go out and talk with somebody about the God who saved me. So there's another question some of you might be thinking, well, if God, if God is really the one doing it, if God needs to say, let there be light, and it doesn't matter how good and useful I am, then why do I even do this? Why don't I just go sit on my couch and stop sharing my faith and let God just keep saying, let there be light? Well, Paul answers that question in verse seven. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is a really famous verse. The treasure is the gospel, and this treasure is placed in fragile, fumbling, insufficient jars, us. And you don't put a treasure in an insufficient container unless you're trying to make some sort of statement, which is exactly what God's trying to do. He wants to tell everybody when somebody turns from their ways to mine and their eyes are opened, I get the glory, not the person who talked with them. And Angela and I got such a neat picture of this about eight years ago when we were on staff with Crew, then known as Campus Crusade at Mississippi State. Through a very random and providential set of circumstances, I was having a coffee with one of the defensive linemen on the football field. And the two of us, we just come from such different worlds. We, under normal circumstances, probably would not have been sitting together. And he was telling me how he's about to get kicked off the football team, basically for a bad attitude, an unwillingness to listen, and some anger. And I sat with him, and I listened, and I shared the gospel with him. And it was not fancy. It was not flashy. But I do think it was clear. And he had some level of interest, and I said, you need to go home, and you need to ask God to open your eyes to see and to give you a heart 
to believe. That's what you need to do. And we parted ways, and we got back together a week later. And I've got like a, a set of questions that I will normally ask when there's been that kind of appointment. And I didn't get to ask a single question for all his questions coming at me. He, he was like a different person, and he looked at me, and he said, Jim, I feel like I was blind, but now I see everything's so different. I was reading the Bible and I was reading about this Holy Spirit and I think he's inside of me, which is kind of weird. And I need you to explain this to me. And I was looking at at what a wife needs to be. And my girlfriend, she sure doesn't match up. So I broke up with her. (laughs) And then he said, I saw that I'm supposed to be telling people about Jesus. And let me tell you, there's some people who need to hear on the football team. We've got some work to do. He was totally and radically different. He went on to work with FCA. He went to seminary. He now works with Athletes in Action in Arkansas. And do you know what he has never said? Jim did that. You know what nobody who saw the whole process was ever tempted to say? Jim did that. God got the glory in that. There can be no mistake. God is the one that opens our eyes. And when he uses us, It's of his grace and his glory that we get to be a part of it. And I think the more that we realize this, the more excited we will be to go out and talk about Jesus. I think we will be more bold in the way that we talk about Jesus, but not just bold. I think we're also going to be more patient. We're going to be more kind. We're going to be more humble. And most of all, I think we will be more loving when we realize the roles we play and the role God plays in this process. All right. So people are blind because of sin. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded everyone. We're fundamentally unable to respond to the gospel unless God says supernaturally, let there be light. What then is our role? Well, Paul gets really practical here. He gets really practical. And in my fourth point, he tells us what not to do. He tells us very clearly what not to do. In the beginning of verse two, He says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. So the the false apostles in Corinth, they they were wanting to change the message. They're saying, Paul, we need to make you a little more attractive here. <laughs> we, we, need to, we need to change the way that you go about this. Maybe could you not talk about hell in public gatherings? Maybe we've got an idea. How about we don't tell somebody about sin until they're already in a community group? That makes sense. They'd be more likely to stick around after that. Or maybe, Paul, these young folks, they really respond to like lights and smoke machines. Could we get one of those? just to make it a little more attractive, a little more palatable. Because what you're doing is not working. So what was going on there? These false apostles, they are nothing more than first century marketing gurus. There is a product and there is an audience to sell the product to. That's what's going on. And if the audience is not buying the product, we need to repackage. We need to rebrand. We need to figure out a different approach to make them buy. And and if we did that, more people probably would buy. But what is that buying? It would produce something. 
What it would produce is false converts who think they're something they're not because we have used manipulation and dishonesty to try to get them in the doors and keep them there. The King James Version says Paul renounces the hidden things of shame. We're not going to hide anything. We are going to be who we are. We're not going to bait and switch. There are limits to what we will do in our ministry because we want to be honest. We aren't practicing trickery or cunning. We don't sit in staff meeting thinking, how, how do we, what can we do to just bring lots of people in the door? What can, we, what can we tell them before we switch it to the gospel? What can we, what can we do to use their, their emotions and, and maybe manipulate how they're feeling to get them to come forward at the end of a service? We don't do that. I read, uh, I'd heard about this a while ago, but just to be sure, I went online and I read a manual produced for the leadership of a very big, well-known church in the U.S. And they were wanting to, to get people in a position where they are more likely at the end of the service to walk down and be baptized. And so this, this form said to the church leadership, remember, they were talking about baptized, believing Christians, when there is a call for baptism, we want you to walk down first. We know your intention is not really to be baptized, but we want you to walk down the aisle because then other people are going to be more likely to do the same thing. Clearly, the Holy Spirit is insufficient, so this is our role in people's responses. This is the kind of trickery and cunning that Paul is talking about and everything that we are supposed to refuse as honest, faithful Christians as we go forward and try to have a fruitful ministry. So we reject the voices that say more entertainment and shorter sermons. If it's simply a a product and a seller, then we should just give in and bring business people in and let them tell us how to do things to make people more likely to buy a product. But Paul says very clearly, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, same context. This isn't what we're doing. He says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. We're not peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity. So when you think of something that, that someone who only wants to sell you something, they don't care about you, they just want to sell you something. Do you think of that person as sincere? Men of its sincerity. As commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Some of you are worried I'm going to tell us we're now going to the grove and going to start yelling at people. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not trying to turn you all into Old Testament prophets here. But there is something we're supposed to do. And Paul finally does tell us very clearly, my last point, what we're to do. In 2b, so the second half of the second verse, and 5. What are we supposed to do? But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 
Okay, so before I say anything else, I do want to say very clearly, the audience is not irrelevant. <laughs> okay, you, you might have inferred that in my last point, but the audience is not irrelevant. All right, we're not supposed to be some sort of church that just hits pause in 1955 or 1689 or 18, whatever. We're not to just hit pause and not worry about the way the culture is developing because that wasn't what Paul was doing. Paul cared about the culture. He knew people in different areas were asking different questions. He knew that they had different pressures and different concerns, and so he would approach them very differently. Now, if you force me to decide between the two, if I've got to pick between an under-contextualized church stuck in 1955 or a cheesy, over-contextualized church who uses cunning and trickery and the words awesome and bro ten times in the, in the greeting, I'm going to pick 1955. Bring on the cigarettes. But that is not the choice we are forced to make here, all right? That's not the choice. There is another way. There's a way we can have both. When I go to Italy, I do ministry differently there. I know they're asking different questions. I know their level of their culture has impacted them differently. I know that they have different pressures and they're going to ask these questions in a different language. So yes, we contextualize the gospel. We need to do this. But we also have to know that people don't need watered down messages. What they need is the message de delivered clearly, contextualized, humbly, kindly, and most of all, lovingly. Paul is saying in this verse that we are to love people to pieces. We're to love people to pieces, to get to know them, to understand them, and to declare truth to them all along the way. We are to serve them. We are to understand their hurts and their fears and their hopes. And we are to take all of those things and show them how those emotions are fulfilled and satisfied fully in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus came down to this earth because we had no other hope. He came and he lived the life that we forfeited. He voluntarily took on the wrath that we chose he became the scapegoat of Leviticus. He hurt for us. And he did this so that we could trade places with him, so that we could be washed clean, so that God now looks at us as if we had come down and saved humanity ourselves. And when we see that, every deep fear goes away. And so as Christians, we need... We need to think and meditate deeply as to whether or not we believe this. Do we really think that our eyes were opened? That whoever it is that shared the gospel with us, it wasn't them. It was God who opened our eyes. Because if we do believe this, we will know and embody the reality that nothing else will satisfy anyone. Our problem is too big it took the death of a perfect man to fix. That's the only logical conclusion that we can come to. So we don't promote ourselves. We put truth in people, in front of people, in the conscience of God. Sorry. We put truth to their consciences in the sight of God, and we serve them. We serve them, and as we do, 
We proclaim with our actions and with our words that Jesus is king, that Jesus is their only hope. So we are to hold truth and culture in this tension. We are to become experts in both. And the best analogy that I've ever heard for what this looks like actually came from JD, no surprise. When we are trying to engage in ministry, what we're fundamentally doing is making an introduction. That's what we're doing. We want to introduce two people that we care about to each other. And I know all of us have had that awkward moment when you're, you're introducing somebody you really know well, like your spouse, to somebody you're supposed to know well, but it's really obvious that you don't. And maybe you've had the experience where you're supposed to know both, you don't know either, but you're trying to, make, you're trying to introduce them to each other. That, that sure doesn't work. But when you know both parties well, when you care about them, you're able to make an introduction that is knowledgeable, that is credible, and compassionate. And when we know our lost friends well, when we spend time with them, when we pray for them, and we know our Savior well, the introductions that we make will be easier and surprisingly natural and much more effective. So our call is to know both people, to know both parties well, and to leave the results to God. That's what we're called to do. Think about Paul's conversion for a moment. Think about Paul's conversion. He was on the road to Damascus. His mission was to arrest and murder Christians. And Jesus appeared to him. Jesus appeared to him with light that blinded him. And let's look at the conversation those two had. And I, this is Paul, I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Here's the purpose. To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. And if you hear anything else, this is what I want you to hear. To whom I am sending you to open their eyes. Their problem is blindness. And we're sent to open their eyes. So that they may turn from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. And a place among those who are sanctified by me in faith. The problem is blindness. And we are sent to open eyes. But we're not going alone. God is going with us. God is going before us. He is going to say, let there be light. And because we know this, we should be excited to be able to have a ministry of any kind. So I want to finish by doing, by doing this. I want us to pray. And this is not like a, a token into the sermon preacher prayer. All right? We are going to pray silently, all of us. I want you to think about one or two people in your life who you want God to open their eyes. I want you to think about them, name them, and ask the God who is the only one who can say, let there be light, to say it. And ask him if he might be so gracious as to use you to make that introduction. Let's pray.
Lord, we do lift these names to you. And we pray that you would open their eyes. We, we pray for dramatic stories this week of you doing dramatic things and using insufficient, vastly insufficient vessels to open eyes. Lord, we are excited and blessed that we get to be a part of this ministry. And we pray that you would continue to cultivate in us a sense of awe and wonder in what we're called to do. And I pray specifically this week for anybody in this room who has the opportunity to make an introduction. I pray for everybody going on a mission trip of any place next week. I pray that this would be especially clear to us, that you would give us opportunities to talk about the person we care about most in this world and that eyes would be opened. We're so thankful that you do this, that you have designed it this way, and we pray all of this in the perfect name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the musicians are going to come up. This is a time of response that we have built into the service. It's not like a come down front response. It's a you and God response. But that response could look a lot of different ways. Maybe you want your eyes to be opened. And you're 